I invite you to open your Bibles with me tonight to our study of the book of Galatians. We are continuing our study through Paul's letter. We find ourselves tonight in chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. I want to begin by reading for us verses 1 through 12. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. The one who is disturbing you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. Would that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. Let's um, pray. Father, thank you once again for our time tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we have it, that we can study it, that we can know you, that we can understand what you tell us because of the illuminating grace and mercy of the Spirit in our life. Lord, help us tonight to understand these deep things that you have so that we might live unto your glory for your are good, and for the sake of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As you can tell, this is a very practical section of the Apostle Paul's letter. It's practical in that Paul lays out for us some very important implications and how we internalize the idea of what matters most to us. What matters most to us? You remember back in chapter 1 and 2, Paul set out at the very beginning to establish the authority which God had granted to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was directly commissioned by Christ to speak the truth of Christ to those whom God was sending him. And they were 
matters that dealt with how one is justified before God. That is what he began to deal with when it came to the believers in Galatia, how one is justified before God. And then as we move through chapters 3 and 4, he set out to prove that justification is by faith alone, that there's no other way in which you are justified before God. It is faith alone apart from any effort on your own part. The law, keeping of the law, only brought a curse to you. That's all the law could do. The law cannot bring life. It only brings cursing. No matter how good you are, it is always there waiting to curse the moment that you fail at any part of the law. It was only through faith, it's only by the power of the Spirit of God that God redeems and makes a person His child, that makes any of us His heir, where we can cry out to Him, like Paul said to the Galatians, Abba, Father. Now we are in chapter 5 and 6, the last two sections, if you will, of this letter that Paul wrote. They wouldn't have had chapter titles. It's very convenient for us to have those because we can catalog things in our mind. But here we are in chapters 5 and 6, and we are introduced to what that justifying faith by the power of the Spirit produces in the life of a Christian. Paul said, I have authority to deal with these things. I want to talk to you about justification, how someone is justified before God. I'm arguing that justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, and justification has an outworking by the power of the Spirit Spirit in the life of a believer. In fact, this whole idea of the Spirit is, is driven multiple times over and over again in these last chapters. You notice in chapter 5, just to kind of show you this really quickly, chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. There, Paul is driving home this idea of living by, following, submitting yourself to the leading of the Holy Spirit in your life. For the flesh sets as a desire against the Spirit, verse 17, the Spirit against the flesh. So you have this juxtaposition going on between the sinfulness of flesh and the holiness and the direction that God has by the Spirit. Notice verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So there again, this whole idea of Spirit is being brought through continually here by the Apostle Paul over in verse 25 of chapter 5. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You can't say, listen, I'm a Christian. This is the idea of that very sentence. I'm a Christian. I, I live by the Spirit. I'm made alive by the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God that made me alive. And then not walk by the Spirit. That's an impossibility. God changes you. It's an impossibility to say, I know Jesus Christ. I I love Jesus Christ. He made me alive and then not walk by the Spirit. There ought to be some Spirit life in you. And then over in chapter 6, verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. So you... You plant your seeds there. That's where you go. That's who you are to follow. So this is the theme. Spirit-empowered living. 
Spirit-empowered living, and what hinders that kind of living is what Paul wants to get into first. And so this is where he begins. And he is asking the question that I posed to us in the very title of my message, what matters to you? What is it that matters to you? This is a whole lot more that we could really say in reference to verse 1. We looked at it briefly last Lord's Day as we were here. Right, We gained an understanding of the principle of law and grace. Right from the Old Testament example of Ishmael and his mother Hagar being the example of the law, and then Sarah and Isaac as those of the free woman. Right, So that was the example, the illustration of law and grace, being under the law and being under God's grace. In one sense, this entire letter can be boiled down to the very statement made by Paul here in verse 1. He says, It was for freedom that Christ set you free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not subject again to a yoke of slavery. So, Paul begins with this statement of fact. This is a factual reality if we are in Christ. It is for freedom. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That is fact. That is a settled reality. Christ sets us free in order to be free. Let me say that again. Christ sets us free in order that we might be free. The question that comes to our mind is this. Free from what? Free from what? If it was for freedom that Christ set us free, then what is that freedom? What are we free from? We are free from the slavery, the bondage, of attempting to gain a righteous standing before God by our own efforts. We are free from that. That striving, that attempt on our own efforts to try to attain some kind of righteousness that God would accept, to be good enough to stand before God by our own merits, we are free from that struggle. By Christ, we are, Paul says, set completely free from that kind of activity in order to gain righteousness. Notice then that it was for freedom that we are set free. And most importantly, notice it was Christ who did it. It was for freedom, notice, that Christ set us free. It was Christ that did it. When did Christ set us free? Christ set us free when He accomplished by His own death on the cross, paying for the penalty of our sin, freeing us from the curse of the law. We are not under the curse, and therefore our freedom has nothing to do with our effort. We did not gain freedom by something we did. It was Christ that set us free. To say it simply, Christ accomplished what we could not. 
Christ finished what we could never finish. And so then Paul makes this appeal to them based upon that. He says in verse 1, Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. In other words, in appreciation and in comprehension of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf before God because of His vicarious death, burial, and resurrection, and faith in Him, because of that you are free. Therefore, stand firm in that understanding. Stand firm in what you believe. Do not adjust what matters most. Don't adjust that. Don't edit it. Don't water it down. Don't change it. Don't fudge it. Don't blur the lines. Don't begin to think that what you do as a Christian, religiously, don't begin to think in even the smallest of fashions that what you do by way of your religious practice matters in the end. If you have in any kind of sense placed some kind of confidence upon what you exercise by way of your own practices, then you are actually exercising legalism. I read a good definition this week of legalism, and I want to repeat it for us tonight. Legalism is this. I thought this was a good definition. Legalism is treating that which is good as though it were essential. Treating that which is good as though it were essential. This is what Paul is concerned about with these Galatian Christians. He is concerned that they are taking things that are good, spiritually good, maybe even somewhat helpful in a certain context, and they are making them or treating them as though they are essential. Why is Paul so concerned about that? Because it is so spiritually dangerous. It is so spiritually dangerous. When we, when we take any kind of religious practice, let's just take your Bible reading or take your discipleship practices or whatever it is we do which is good for us, when we take any of those kinds of practices in our life that have some spiritual worth, they have a value spiritually for our even our growth, and we make that practice, absolutely necessary for righteousness, then we are being legalistic. And when we are like that, it is spiritually dangerous, not only to ourselves, it is dangerous to others. So what I want to do tonight is just look at what Paul says, because 
what happens when we do that? What happens when we do that? And oftentimes we, we, we ebb and flow in our own Christian lives and in our own minds sometimes getting down on ourselves because, because things are going on in our life and our Christian practice seems to wave and, and flow. And sometimes we're really hot and on fire for God and, and we're our religious discipleship and our, our practices and spiritual growth and our Bible reading, all these kind of things are really banging on all cylinders. And other times we seem to kind of fade a little bit and we begin to wonder, well, maybe something's going on here. Maybe God doesn't love me as much as he loved me before. Maybe if I do these things, maybe if I carry out this activity, I'll get back to where I was because that's the place where God really is pleased with me by way of my own standing with him. What happens when we exchange what is good and make it what matters most? That's the question. What happens when we let legalism just slip into our lives? Well, this is what Paul talks about here in in this section. He gives us several, several dangers. First, Paul says, the first danger is this. If you allow that to happen in your life where what is good becomes what is necessary, Paul says, you invalidate Christ. You invalidate Christ. I don't know if he could have started off with more heavy of a thought than that. Notice what he says in verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, hearkening back to the authority that he has, I say to you that if you receive circumcision, there's a religious practice, not a bad one, God commanded it of Israel. If you receive circumcision, he's saying, in the context for which they were thinking about receiving it because they were believing the Judaizers, if you receive circumcision, then Christ will be of no benefit to you. In other words, you invalidate Christ. It's almost as if Paul is reminding them who he is. Behold, I, Paul, say to you, remember the authority that I have? Remember that I'm commissioned by God, that, that you have to listen to me. It's almost like what we do sometimes with somebody when they're, when they're having trouble or they're struggling in some sin issue of life and we've shared things with them. We want to grab them by the shirt and just say, listen, you need to pay attention to this. This is what Paul's doing. how much Paul has sacrificed on their behalf, right? I've, I've given everything to you, and you guys are so quickly going to turn from that truth? Have I become, he says in verse chapter 4, remember verse 16, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Right? So whether Paul is reminding them of his authority or whether he's reminding them of his personal sacrifice, we can't truly be fully sure of what he is saying in that phrase, but either way, Paul's reminding them of their relationship with him. Listen, this is Paul. This is me. You know me, he's saying. You know me. And then he says, in essence, if you're going, if you go about getting circumcised because you think that it matters most in the end when it comes to your righteousness before God, if you think in the end that your circumcision is going to change anything eternally before you and God, I have news for you. All you are doing is invalidating Christ.
All you are doing is relying on something that will do nothing for you in the end. In other words, your profession of faith in Christ seemingly has no value. It's worthless. Why? Because you have chosen circumcision over Christ. You have said that your circumcision means most in the end, more than Christ. You have said that Christ is no longer sufficient to save. That's what the message of the legalist Judaizers was. Right? Get circumcised or you're not saved. Do this religious practice or you're not going to be just before God. Make sure you do these things or or Jesus Christ isn't going to be enough. You, you have to add to that. Your righteous standing before God has to do with you doing something. You, you have to be circumcised. And the Galatians were sensing the pressure to follow. In fact, remember back in verse 10 of chapter 4, they're already doing certain things. Right? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I mean, they'd already followed into a pattern by which they were doing these ritualistic activities. And the implication from Paul's words there in chapter 4, verse 10, is that you're doing them not because they're good, but because you think they're necessary to do them. You think that in doing them, somehow you're becoming righteous. They're not bad things. But you're making them what mattered most eternally. And in doing that, you're invalidating Christ on behalf of your justification. Justification is by means of faith in Christ alone. And so ultimately, they're on the verge of saying by their actions that Christ is not sufficient to make them righteous before God. If Christ is not righteous before God, if Christ isn't righteous enough to make us righteous before God, then Christ himself is not righteous before God because it is his righteousness that we receive if we truly believe. Do you see the implication? The implication is not simply to bring something into your life. The implication is that by your very actions and by what you're doing, you are devaluing Christ. You are invalidating the very reality of who Christ is, not only for yourself, but all whom you talk to and all whom you carry that out in your life with, all whom you share that with. So, If you seek ultimate spiritual benefit from other things, then Christ no longer is an advantage for you. That's the first thing. That's the first danger. That's a pretty big danger. Any activity that we do, good things, things that for our life that will help us, that will build us up. Those are all good things, but we must never, we must never make those things what matters most when it comes to our relationship with God by way of our righteousness before God. That is a settled factor in Christ. We can never change that. That is a done deal. All those other things are for our sanctification, but have no bearing upon our justification. So not only danger number one, do we invalidate Christ, but danger number two is that you must be perfect. If you're going to make what is good 
that which now must be necessary, you must be perfect in your actions. Notice verse 3. Paul says, and, connecting it with verse 2, you've invalidated Christ, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision. In other words, you've already gone through this practice. Who You receive circumcision. Here's the deal. If you are going to do that and believe it's justifying for you to do that before God by way of your own righteousness, then you are under obligation to keep the whole law. You see, if you're going to attribute by your actions that righteousness is achieved by your efforts in some kind of way, then you better be perfect in your efforts. That's the idea. You better not ever make a mistake. You are under obligation to the whole law. So if you're going to say that one part of the law matters most in the end, then you better be prepared to say that all of the law matters most. In the end, James chapter 2, verse 10, right? To keep the law and fail at one point is to be guilty of the whole law. That's the idea. You better be perfect. This is the whole idea. Let's turn for a moment quickly over to Luke chapter 10. This is the whole idea in Luke chapter 10. This is not a story about a good Samaritan who comes and to take care of people and we ought to have the attitude of a good Samaritan while it should be that we ought to reach out to help people who are in need. That's, that's a good thing. We even have good Samaritan laws based upon the idea that this principle that we've drawn out of his about helping others, we think it's all about that. But that's not what this illustration is about. This illustration begins based upon the question that takes place in verse 25 of Luke chapter 10. Behold, a certain lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That is a loaded question. That is a question about justification. How can I be justified before God? And you'll see that here in a minute, right? Jesus says to him, what is written in the law? What does the law say? Sounds like somewhat of a strange answer when we think about it from the Galatian perspective, because we know the law can't save. So why in the world would Jesus be saying to this lawyer, hey, what's it say in the law? Well, part of it's based upon his question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus says, okay, tell me what the law says. If you want to do things, tell me what the law says. How does it read to you? And he answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He answers well. He answers the first commandment, and then he goes down and answers what Jesus had said already in previous times. And he says to him, you have answered correctly. Notice, do this, and you will live. Stated in our own way, do it perfectly. Don't fail at all because the law is there to curse you. And if you break it at one point, you're guilty of the whole thing. So do what you have said. Love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Perfectly. And of course, the man 
says to him, wishing to justify himself. Do you see there's justification? Wishing to stand before God based upon his own righteous activity, he says to Jesus, okay, who's my neighbor? Implying, first of all, that he loves God with his whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he's already doing that. Well, if he was loving God with his whole heart, mind, and strength, you would think he would know who his neighbor is, but here he is asking the question because this is what sin does. It blinds you to the reality of who you are. Tell me who my neighbor is because I I need to know in order that I can fulfill that so that I can say I'm righteous before God by my own activity. And of course, Jesus goes into the whole story of the Good Samaritan. Of course, we know the question he asks in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved, proved by way of his activity, proved by way of his actions, proved by way of how he lived to be the neighbor of the man who fell into Robert's hands? Right? It wasn't the Pharisee. It wasn't the religious people, the Levite wasn't a priest, wasn't a Levite, it was a Samaritan, it was a half-Jew, it was someone this guy would have hated being a lawyer in Israel. No way he's going to love that guy. Which three was a neighbor? He couldn't even say the guy's nationality, the one who showed mercy toward him, he said in verse 37. He didn't say the Samaritan, he just said the one who showed mercy. Kind of keeping it rather vague. And so Jesus simply says, okay, go and do the same. Well, he wasn't going to do that. No way he was going to do that. Well, this is the essence of what Paul's talking about back in Galatians chapter 5. Right? If you're going to put aside the blessings of the new covenant, the blessings that are found only in Christ, by faith in Christ, justified by Christ, which is all purchased through Christ by the blood of Christ. If you're going to set all that aside, then the only covenant left for you is the old covenant, the law, and you better live perfectly under the law. You better live under that in such a way because you've already nullified Christ, you've invalidated Christ, you have to live as if Christ never died for you. You have to be perfect. So you invalidate Christ, that's danger number one. If you make what matters what is good and you make it what matters most. And two, you have to live perfectly if you're going to live that way. And if that's the case with you, then reality number three becomes really the reflection of your heart. You have been severed from Christ, verse three. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. What is Paul saying? Paul's simply saying, if that's the case, if you want to try to receive salvation by your own efforts rather than through Christ, then Christ is of no value to you. You must be perfect. And in fact, your profession about Christ is words only. It's words only. If you're trying to be justified by your own efforts, then you have nullified Christ. You must be perfect. 
And your profession of faith in Christ is words only. Notice he says, you have been severed from Christ. You have fallen from grace. A couple interesting phrases. Seems to indicate in some kind of way, if we're thinking people, that how is that the case? Can we lose our salvation? Is there some sense in which we can be in grace in the sense of a saving grace and fall out of grace as if we lose our salvation or we're severed from Christ? What happens if we were attached to Christ? Can we be severed from Christ? Severed means that Christ has no effect upon you for justification. Christ has no effect upon you for justification. In other words, he cannot profit you in any way if you're going to live as a legalist. In other words, to seek righteousness by works is a barrier. It severs you to Christ. And then Paul says it another way. It's almost a... uh, a synonymous phrase when he says you have fallen from grace because fallen from grace doesn't mean fallen from within grace as if we were once there and now you're not there and that you not being there is by means of you doing something that got you out of there. No, fallen from grace doesn't mean lose one's salvation as some try to say it means. That's impossible. You cannot lose your salvation if you're truly saved, right? John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but has everlasting life. John 6.47, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. John 10.28, Jesus said, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if we're severed from Christ by this kind of activity, we're fallen from grace, then what does it mean? It means, beloved, that those who seek to be justified by effort, those who seek to place their justification before God like the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 by their own efforts have rejected grace. They have rejected the grace of God through Jesus Christ as the principle for getting right with God. This is what Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says. We know it well, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So both the grace and the faith are the gifts of God. You don't bring any of them to the equation. It is all of God. It is not of you. It is not a result of works so that none of us can boast before God. We cannot say, standing before God in His grace, by means of Christ, hey, look what I have done. I made it. So there's not two ways to be saved. There's only one way to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith and not by works. 
This is why Paul makes the attempt. If you're going to go that way, you better be perfect and you will realize and you should realize right out of the gate because you've already not been perfect. Even in your perfection, you wouldn't be good enough. Christ is either sufficient to save or Christ is not sufficient to save. The Bible declares that He is so if, if you live by works, if that is your means for justification, right? It was for freedom that Christ set us free. But if you want to go back to a yoke of slavery, if that's where you're going to go and you've received circumcision, you have invalidated Christ. If you hold to that as your means in the end for being, you're standing before God, you are under obligation to every part of the law. You better fulfill every single aspect of the law without fail because you have been severed from Christ. You are not in grace. Dangerous. It's a dangerous reality dangerous place. It's not only a dangerous place to live, it's a dangerous place to perpetuate upon others. This is what's so heinous about the Catholic Church and other religions around the world that do not believe that Jesus Christ is sufficient alone to save. That you need means of grace, that you need the infusion of grace through the church or through some other means or through your own efforts. You've got to travel around the world in a black pants and a white shirt riding a bike in hopes that you reach enough houses and convince them that Joseph Smith was right. It's only by the work of Christ. Notice then reality number five here. Paul says that salvation is by faith alone. Verse five, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. And Paul says, we, he means the true Christian. For the true Christian, those who are genuinely saved by Christ, through faith in Christ, live by that faith. We, as opposed to those who have fallen from grace, those who have been severed from Christ, those who were never saved, we Christians through the power of the Spirit, we Christians who got there not by our own efforts, not by anything we did, not by the activity which we think helps us, and now we're holding that to the highest place whereby it means something in the eternity before God. No, it is from the power of the Spirit that salvation came to us, and thereby it cannot be our own power. And by the power of God. So it is we Christians by the Spirit it is the work done to us, not by us. We, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. It is the Spirit of God that opens our eyes to Christ. It is the Spirit of God that grants us that faith to believe. It is that Spirit of God that brings us into the family of Christ, and we trust ourselves to Christ. I don't trust ourselves to how many chapters I read in a day, although that's profitable and we ought to be doing that. We don't trust ourselves to the 
times that we are here and if we come here, we, we are somehow justified before God by coming here. We don't trust ourselves to any of those kinds of things. We trust ourselves to Christ and Christ alone. That is how salvation comes. We know this. We know that. We know it intellectually. We even know it in our hearts. And yet there are times when we are tempted to revert back. There are those times when we transfer and we we take the things of sanctification and we place them over and atop of justification and we begin to make those things of sanctification the things of justification. And we tell other people, you got to live this way, you got to do this, or or you're not as spiritual as me, or or you're not going to be right with God and, and all of those kinds of things when it's Christ who makes us right with God. Sometimes we dabble with that and we flip-flop back and forth like a fish out of water. We think that our doing is gaining us some standing before God. We think that if we do those things, then we are loved by God. We think that spirituality is found in the doing rather than in the being in Christ. But it's not by our efforts that we wait for Christ. It's not by our efforts that we even conjure up that reality. No, we believe, and it's through that belief that we wait for the hope of righteousness. You see that? It is through the Spirit, by faith. You see, even our sanctifying growth in Christ is by faith in Christ. We are saved by faith in Christ and we walk by faith in Christ. This is what Paul is going to get into in chapter 5. Not by our efforts. Paul is simply saying that we live in light of the final day to come. We live in that hope. We live in that hope of that righteousness to come. We live as we do because of freedom in Christ. We live like we do because we are free in Christ, because Christ set us free. That means, beloved, what matters most is not what we do. What matters most is what He has done. What matters most is that we have a right relationship with God through Christ. And because of that relationship we have with God through Christ that can never be changed, that nothing can snatch us out of His hands, therefore we eagerly wait for the day for complete righteousness. Righteousness like our sister has now who went to be with him even this morning. Now, someone may say, well, if, if I understand justification rightly, and then that's a done deal in Christ, and you're saying that I shouldn't hold those things of sanctification to be matters that matter the most, then, then doesn't that remove striving for obedience now? I mean, if, if I understand legalism the way you're saying it, doesn't that just blow the door open towards license to do whatever I want? Because it really doesn't change anything anyway. In other words, if I understand that I'm saved by grace and not through anything that I do, then doesn't that just allow me the freedom to live however I want? 
Where's the need to walk obediently if I can't lose my salvation and I can't gain my righteousness? Great question, isn't it? Glad you asked it. Here's the answer. Understanding that justification is accomplished by Christ and only through Christ actually protects against both of those extremes. In other words, if you if you think you understand justification rightly on the legalism side and that moves you towards and thinks it opens the door towards license, you don't understand justification yet. And if you think you can live any way you want because it really doesn't matter, then you don't understand justification yet. Because understanding justification by faith alone in Christ alone actually protects against legalism and license. Notice verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Now there's the two polar opposites. In Christ Jesus... What you do religiously, and if you don't do something religiously, those things mean nothing when it comes to eternity in Christ. Nothing. They count for nothing. But faith working through love, there's the protection but faith working through love. So what matters most is not your activity or inactivity. What matters most is Christ. That's that's the first thing you need to understand. It is Christ. Christ is my justification. When we go before glory and and the the inevitable question that we always think that God's going to ask, why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer we could ever give is not me. I have nothing to give. It's all your son. It's Christ. And since I'm enveloped in the righteousness of Christ, that's a silly question. God will never ask that of His children. You're in Christ. So, circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. The context here is that some will say that outward religious practices are important. And by way of sanctification, they are important. And so some might say, so are you saying that they aren't important or that we shouldn't do them? No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not saying that a religious practice or not doing that religious practice are unimportant. What Paul is saying that while those things are good for your growth, while they are good for your sanctification, your growth in godliness, they have no bearing on your standing before God on the final day. That's what he's saying. And when you understand that, when you understand that whether you do it or not do it matters not in the end, then you understand that what matters most is Christ. You've believed in Christ. You want to live for Christ. Right? The only thing that matters is faith working through love. 
See, that is the transformational kind of thinking for our Christian living. What matters most in this life is what matters most on the day when we stand before God. What matters most for us as a Christian is Christ. Our faith in Jesus Christ. And we never want to do anything by way of legalism or by way of license that would detract from that. So if Christ is everything, if He means everything in the end, then He means everything right now. And that is what will make a difference on today for us. What will make a difference before God on that day is the very same thing that makes all the difference today. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. And when we understand faith in Christ rightly, then we live it out in love. You see that? Faith working through love. That kind of faith is more than just believing facts about Jesus. The demons believe facts about Jesus, but they're not justified before God. Saving faith, justifying faith is faith in Jesus that expresses itself in love both for God and others. You see? That expresses himself not in legalism saying, well, God isn't sufficient enough to save me. I must do something. That doesn't love God, which is the very question Jesus was asking the lawyer. What does the law say? Well, we love God with our whole heart. We love our neighbor as ourselves. Believing in Jesus Christ for justification alone helps me understand and helps me express that very reality of faith, my love for God and my love for others. In life, it's faith working through love. And so that means that saving faith strives neither at legalism nor license. Faith through love, striving through love, keeps you right where you ought to be. That's the only kind of faith that will count on the final day. Because that faith has nothing to do with you by way of justification. It's the only thing that matters. Faith in Christ expressed in love for God, i.e. obedience to God, right? Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will obey. So that's love for God. We obey what God says. And we love our neighbor. We love one another. We sacrifice for one another. We exercise the fruit of the Spirit, which he will talk about down at the end of this chapter. That's the exercise of this faith. And so we wait in hope. We wait in hope because of the righteousness of Christ. We wait expectantly, not reluctantly. Boy, I sure hope. I hope this works. No, we don't wait like that. We wait expectantly, which is why we live by faith, which is why we trust the promises that God has made. Why we live through the Spirit. We rely on God's power. I can't do this on my own. I'm going to open the Word of God and see what God says, and I'm going to walk. I'm going to trust what God says, walk by faith, knowing 
that my faith in Christ has secured me for all eternity. When I fail, I'm going to get up and I'm going to confess before God because I know His Word tells me He's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And so I get up and I dust myself off and I confess my sin before God. And if I've offended somebody else or sinned against somebody else, I go to them and I make that right with them so that I'm loving God and loving my neighbor as myself. And I'm walking by faith. So this is the genuine character of faith. The genuine character of saving faith is expressed and demonstrated in love. Actions of your life on behalf of others. So here's the question. Do we know what matters most? Do we know what matters most? Not only in this life, but also in the life to come. What matters most? the same thing, isn't it? What matters most here is the same thing that matters in eternity. It's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, in light of all of that and what we believe, what are we devoting our energies to? What is it, by way of our practice, that we are devoting our energies to, and thereby in our own thinking sometimes, thinking that we are justifying ourselves? What are we striving to see accomplished in our own lives and in the lives of others? I hope it's faith in Christ, trusting in Christ, living by faith in Christ. And if we understand justification rightly, then we understand that faith working through love is what matters most. Faith working through Paul is shocked. Going to get into this a little more next time. Verse 7. You were running well. You were running well. Not what hindered you, but who? You see the influence? Who hindered you? Who hindered you? Not from, from the things that I've said. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? You see? You know, Paul's saying, who hindered you from walking by faith? Who tripped you? Did you see the trip cord? Who did that? Who put that there? We'll get into all that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the secured, eternally secure justification that is in Christ alone. Thank you that we can understand that we cannot earn it. We can never earn it. Forgive us, Lord, for considering at times our very actions as some means by which we are gaining your love. As if somewhere we're increasing in your acceptance of us by what we do. Forgive us for that. Lord, we know these are things for us to to carry out, to walk in obedience, to walk by what you have commanded. We ought to know your word. We ought to be praying. We ought to be interacting with one another. We ought to be sharing the gospel and doing all of those things which encourage one another and stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And we ought to be growing in our faith. And yet at times we get discouraged. Right? We succumb to our own temptation and sin and 
conscience wonders. And so then we try to conjure up somehow some kind of effort in which we can feel better again and we live by feelings rather than by faith. Lord, help us. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us the spirit that we can understand it. Help us to apply it this day. So that you would be honored through us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.